when Secretary of State during the Reagan administration, George Shultz, kept a large globe in his office. When newly appointed ambassadors had an interview with him, and when ambassadors returning from their posts for their first visit with him were leaving his office, Schultz would test them. He would say, you have to go over the globe and prove to me that you can identify your country. They would go over, spin the globe, and put their finger on the country to which they were sent unerringly. I guess that's a good sign. When Schultz's old friend and former Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield was appointed ambassador to Japan, even he was put to the test. This time, however, Ambassador Mansfield spun the globe, put his hand on the United States, and he said, that's my country. On June 27, 1993, Schultz related uh, this to Brian Lamb on C-SPAN's book notes. Said the secretary, quote, I've told that story subsequently to all the ambassadors going out. Never forget you're over there in that country, but your country is the United States. You're there to represent us, take care of our interests and never forget it, and you're representing the best country in the world, end quote. Many Americans today would agree with George Schultz's comments that those who are ambassadors of this country are representing the best country in the world and therefore should be loyal to it. From a Christian point of view, as Christians, we're also ambassadors of Jesus Christ on the earth. And our first loyalty should be to him and to his mission in the world. That raises a question. What happens when one's allegiance to one's own country is greater than one's allegiance to the one true God and his mission in the world? As we will see, the Apostle Paul's experience in a city called Thessalonica will answer that question. He is going to enter a city called Thessalonica. And there he's going to preach the gospel in Thessalonica. But there's going to be a problem in Thessalonica. For there is great loyalty to the state, Rome. And we're going to look at what happens in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 verses 1 to 15, when Paul goes from Philippi, as we saw last week, and enters into a city called Thessalonica. Now, before we get into the passage, we have to learn something about Thessalonica. Thessalonica was founded in 316 B.C. by a man named Cassander, one of the generals of Alexander the Great, and it was named Thessalonica after Cassander's wife, it became a cultural center due to its strategic location. It was approximately 100 miles west-southwest of Philippi, where Paul was last week. In 146 BC, Thessalonica became the capital of the province of Macedonia. And in 42 BC, 
in return for its support of the Roman emperors Antony and Octavian, it became a free city and was not turned into a Roman colony. What does it mean to be a free city? It means that Rome didn't govern them so much. They were free. They had certain level of autonomy in self-governance. That was Thessalonica in opposition to Philippi, which was a Roman colony. Thessalonica minted its own coins, and it had its own form of government. Leaders were called politarchs. There were five or six of them. But nevertheless, Thessalonica had close ties with Rome, and there is evidence of the imperial cult existing in the city, referring to the worship of the emperor. A statue of Augustus was found in the western part of the city, among other pieces of evidence that suggest the existence of the worship of the empire, of the emperor. One may point especially to the coins with which the head of Julius Caesar, which involved the recognition of Julius as a god. These coins reflect the ongoing benefaction or the gifts that Rome bestowed on Thessalonica. Though officially free, Thessalonica was yet another city caught in the emperor's social network involving patronage and the response of homage and loyalty. In the first century world, there was a, uh, a system that was called the uh, patron-client system. You may not be familiar with it, but in the first century world, the patron-client relationship was a part of the social fabric of the first century Mediterranean world. So for an example, if I was someone who had wealth or status, I would be considered a patron. If you needed a job, you needed help, you would be considered a client. And you as a client would come to me and say, as a benefactor, as someone who had status, you would come to me and ask for a job. And with my clout, with my connections, I could get you a job as a patron. The client would then get the job, for example, and then as a result, he would be socially obligated to go around the community and speak of the greatness and the, the, the kindness of the benevolent benefactor or patron. That's what you would do in that society. Paul plays on that idea when he writes his letters to the churches, how, how God is the great benefactor. He's the great kindness. He's the gift giver who gives gifts to his people. And as a result of God being kind to you, though you don't deserve what he gives you, your responsibility is to go throughout the Mediterranean world or your community and talk about the greatness of your God. If you lived in the first century world, you knew what Paul was talking about when he's using such language. Here we see that Thessalonica or Thessalonica was a part of this uh, society that was caught up in the uh, patron-client relationship. And Thessalonica was a recipient of the greatness of the Roman Empire through the Roman emperor. And as a response, they had to be loyal to the state and the emperor, if they wanted to continue receiving the blessings from Rome. Local officials would be expected to enforce loyalty to Caesar in order to maintain the peace and to help the city stay in the good graces of the emperor. This is, this is Thessalonica. We have, this is the city that Paul is going to go into to preach the gospel. It's very important to understand that. 
So with this background in mind, it sets the question up that is going to unlock the meaning of the passage in Acts 17, 1 to, 1 to 15. Here's the question. What happens when the word of God is proclaimed in a society where there is strong support or loyalty to the state? That's the question for the text. What happens when the word of God is proclaimed in a society where there is strong support or loyalty to the state? Number one, when the word of God is proclaimed in a society where there is a strong support or loyalty to the state, God's people will have success in drawing all kinds of people to the faith. Verses one to four. Now when they, who's they? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So you know that there's some Jews in this city. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating three things, that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, number two, and saying, number three, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So that's what he was doing. He was going into the synagogue. They would have already been expected and known about a Messiah. His job was to show from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. How did he do that? Well, the scriptures, are, he says that the Messiah must die. Jesus died, therefore Jesus is the Messiah. So he's using the scripture. He's preaching and proclaiming the word of God. That's what he's doing. And now what's what happened? And some of them, some of the Jews, were persuaded. And a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Here we're seeing that some Jews came to faith, but then you see that a great multitude of devout Greeks, devout Greeks were God-fearers. These were, these were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who would, they were not full converts to Judaism, but they would go to the synagogue and listen to the Old Testament scriptures being preached and taught in the synagogue. Many of them, when they heard Paul preach, they became believers. And many women who were of high social standing in Thessalonica became believers. And not only was this group, but there were many pagans who became believers. When we read in 1 Thessalonians, in Paul's letters to the Thessalonian church, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9, we read this. For from you, Paul writes, from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry or reception we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So the first thing that we see that when the apostle Paul preaches the word of God in a society where there is strong support or loyalty to the state, you, you will find many people turning to Jesus Christ. That is true in the first century world in Thessalonica, and that is true today in our society. For we will find many people who will be putting to, uh, there will be many people who will be supporting and will have great loyalty to the state. That will happen. And when that happens, you will see a lot of people turn and will turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. 
and they will become believers. So that's the first thing we see in a society when there is great support and loyalty to the state, you're going to see a lot of people turning to Jesus Christ. But not everyone's going to like that. So we see number two. When the word of God is proclaimed in a society where there is strong support or loyalty to the state, the word of God will often be seen as politically subversive. What do I mean by subvert? Subvert is to undermine the power and authority of an established system or institution. Government could be, under, could be fit in that, to subvert the government. Verses 5 to 9. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious or jealous, took some of the evil men or the immoral men, agitators, malcontents, unemployed day laborers from the marketplace, the Agora, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. And they sought to bring... Uh, them out to the people. Now, the people here is the public assembly of citizens responsible for judicial matters. Remember, this is a free city, and part of being a free city is that the assembly, the citizens, could have a say in, in judicial matters. So that was their first intent. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, the politarchs, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Why would the crowd be troubled? Because their first loyalty was to the state and to Rome. That's why. So they were troubled by it. And so weren't the rulers. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, there are two charges being made here against the Christians. Two charges. The first is disrupting the peace or disturbing the civil order. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, turn the world upside down for Jesus? Right? How many of you would like to see the world turned upside down for Jesus? You would like to see that, right? What does that phrase actually mean, turn the world upside down for Jesus? How would you describe that? Most of us would just simply say we want to see people become believers. But what does the phrase actually mean? That's a charge that the Thessalonian people are, are, are putting on the Christians, this isn't the Christians saying that. This is a charge by the Thessalonians saying, hey, these Jew the Jews are saying, hey, this is, these are people who are turning the world upside down. What does that phrase actually mean? The, the quote or the phrase, these who have turned the world upside down, literally means to subvert or to overthrow the world, or the, in this particular context, to overthrow Rome. It means to cause trouble everywhere. They are literally disturbing or disrupting the peace, disturbing the public order. That's one of the charges that is being made against the Christians here. To turn the world upside down is to cause a public disturbance. And so that's charge number one that the Christians are being accused of. 
The second one is much more serious. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. That's the second charge. The question is, what decree are they violating? It wasn't sedition or treason. Sedition or treason was against Roman law. It doesn't matter if the king made a decree whether or not sedition was against the law. Sedition or treason was against Roman law, regardless of any decree of Caesar. So the decree of Caesar is referring to something specific. So what is it actually? What, is it, what decree is Paul and the Christians accused of violating? E.A. Judge has suggested that the reference is to a ban on certain kinds of predictions, particularly predictions that have to do with the charge of rulers or that suggest the demise of the current one due to ill health or the like. Paul could plausibly be charged with violating the decree against predictions of the coming of a new king or kingdom. F.F. Bruce, a commentator, says this. He states that Augustus and Tiberius had been very sensitive about the activities of astrologers and other prognosticators and had issued decrees forbidding predictions or inquiries affecting affairs of state or the emperor's well-being. So here you have the Apostle Paul going into a society where there is great loyalty or support to the state. And he's going around saying there's a new king and there's a new kingdom who's going to establish his kingdom in this world. Now, how do you think those in authority are going to respond to such a claim? You say, well, if they had any any kind of proof that Paul was saying such things or any Christian was saying such things in such a context, Paul would be in big trouble. Well, let's take a look at what Paul was saying in his letter. In 2 Thessalonians verse 1, verses 3 to 8, and you tell me whether or not this could be considered a prediction that talks about the demise of a particular ruler. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may, re- that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so only until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now you say something like that in a society that has absolute allegiance to the state, that could be seen as a violation of the emperor's decree in the first century. And Paul could be charged with a major violation of a decree of Caesar. All of this is simply suggesting and showing us that when one preaches and teaches the word of God in a society where there is strong support or loyalty to the king, your preaching can be considered politically subversive. And that is true in a land in which we live today as well. 
as the months and the years go by and the governed bee starts to amass more and more power to itself, demanding more and more of its citizens, and the gospel is being preached and people are starting to see what's going on and they turn to faith, then those who are on the front lines and their preaching will be considered politically subversive because it is contrary to that of the state which is trying to seek power unto itself and through its rulers who represent the state. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not accepted in many countries in our world today because it is seen as a direct threat to those who are in power. The gospel will not be allowed to be permitted to be preached in North Korea because it is a violation of their great sacred leader, Kim Jong-un, and is a direct reminder of their brevity in power. And no one wants to be reminded of that, so squash it. And when a land that is free starts going in a direction where those freedoms are taken away and society starts to turn into a direction where it starts to show allegiance to the state and not God, then the state will start to clamp down on those who preach the gospel who are making an impact in society and will say it is now politically subversive. That's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. And if we're not careful here in this land, the same thing is going to happen. When the word of God is proclaimed in a society where there is strong support or loyalty to the state, the word of God, the gospel, will often be seen as politically subversive. Number three, when the word of God is proclaimed in a society where there is strong support or loyalty to the state, those who proclaim God's word will often be pursued by those who oppose them in order to prevent them from being successful in their mission. Verses 10 to 13. So then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, a different city, which is about 40, 45 miles away from Thessalonica. It was about from here to Watertown. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, just like they did in Thessalonica. These, however, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. implying that the believers in Thessalonica or the Jews in Thessalonica didn't do that. And many today won't do the same when they hear the gospel. They will never turn to see that the scriptures of whether or not the preachers are actually being faithful to the text. Do you do that with me? I stand up here and I put the text on the screen and I read, but do you do your due diligence and see whether or not what I'm saying is actually in the text? That's on you to do that, not me. You need to make sure that I'm correct in what I'm saying. You do me a favor when I do that. The church gets into trouble when it puts too much confidence and hope in the one who's teaching and preaching and doesn't validate or check to see of whether or not those things are so. The Bereans are to be commended and should be followed in their example. We need to follow that example. You don't want to go to church and just simply listen to the preacher preach and teacher teach. You have a responsibility to check to make sure that the preacher is preaching and teaching the scripture. The Bereans did that. I wonder how many people in the churches today actually do that. Verse 12. Therefore, many of them believe as a result of doing of searching the scriptures, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. 
Once again, we see success. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God was preached at, by Paul at Berea, they came there also and they stirred up the crowds. They pursued them 40, 50 miles, the apostle Paul. After they chased out of Thessalonica, they go to Berea and they do the same thing there. And notice the means by which they're trying to keep the gospel from going forth. They're using a mob. The Jews are using people to accomplish their own dirty work. They don't want to do it themselves, so they'll use the, the, those in society that you know, are expendable from their point of view. They're worthless people anyway. They're in the marketplace. They're jobless. They're quote-unquote lowlifes. We'll use them. We'll stir them up. That's exactly what happened then, and that's, we've already seen that in the past. We haven't seen, unfortunately, the last of mobs. I hope I'm wrong, but I doubt it. And they'll be used to try to squelch the movement of what Jesus is trying to accomplish in our world. Simply to say that when the word of God is proclaimed in a society where there is strong support and loyalty to the state, those who preach God's word and are making a difference will be pursued so that their mission will be hindered. Whenever there's success and the gospel is going forward, Satan will not just take that lying down. There will be opposition. They go hand in hand. We see that in Jesus' ministry. We see that in Apostle Paul's ministry. Any ministry where the Spirit is at work, you can better believe when they become successful, opposition will arise. And fourthly, when the word of God is proclaimed in a society where, the, where there is strong support or loyalty to the state, those who proclaim God's word will need guidance from God's people, the church, to help them escape from those who are pursuing them. Verses 14 and 15. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, that is, to the coast. But both, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul or who guided Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Notice what, is, notice what is happening. In verse 14, it says that immediately the brethren sent Paul and Silas away, or Paul, to go to the sea, to the coast. You would normally go from Berea to Athens by boat. And so the text says that that's the direction in which they go. They go to the coast to the sea, to go there by boat. But notice what it says in verse 15. Those who conducted or guided Paul brought him to Athens. What's going on here? It seems like he's going by boat. But in the Greek language, it seems to say that he's going by land because he's being guided by Paul to go to Athens. Well, why are people guiding him to go to Athens? If he's going by boat, the boat will take him to Athens. Some have suggested what is going on here is that Paul is trying to throw away or to throw off guard those who are pursuing him so that they can't follow him anymore. Uh, a commentator, Daryl Box, says, some scholars suggest that the lack of reference to a port of embarkation means that he went by land, not by sea. 
since Luke normally indicates the means of Paul's travels. Paul, perhaps Paul, goes by land and not by sea to throw off those who are following him. And this is showing us that those who are making a big difference in the world, those who are proclaiming God's word in such an environment, needs help by the church to help them get away so they can continue doing the work of God in a society where there is great loyalty and support for the state. This is what the Word of God is sharing with us because we are in a society that is more and more likely going to be like this, where many in our society will be loyal to the state, not to Christ. May that, we hope that that's not going to be the case with the church. The church's loyalty is to Jesus Christ. But when we're in a society where it's more and more loyal and faithful to the state, this is what can happen. I don't know who wrote this, uh, but it's an individual who had an experience on his drive home from work one day. He says, on the way to work this morning, I pulled up to a stoplight and noticed an interesting SUV in front of me. The owner of the SUV is clearly a person of deep loyalty. The spare tire mounted on the back had the words Texas Longhorns and an orange steerhead icon on it. The trailer hitch displayed another steerhead icon and the word Texas. The license plate frame was bordered with the words Longhorns on top and University of Texas at the bottom. But something didn't add up. The license plate frame was screwed into a blue and white Illinois Land of Lincoln license plate with a picture of old Abe himself on it. I live in Illinois, he said, and the SUV's license plate shows that his driver now does too. I assume the owner of the SUV had moved, but had not yet identified with his new home and had no plans of changing loyalties. That's normal human behavior, he said. When we move, we often go through a slow transition of loyalties to our new home. And so it is as a believer, as a Christian. When we come to Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God becomes our home. But the kingdom of this world does not leave our hearts easily. The great challenge of the Christian is to overcome divided loyalties and be fully identified with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The Apostle Paul did that in a society that had not done so, and we saw the result of it. We may very well see that very same thing happen in the society in which we live. So be ready for that, church. Paul's experience in Thessalonica is an indicative of that. So we need to be ready. Amen? Our loyalty is with Jesus Christ first. We love our country. Wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But first and foremost, our loyalty is to Jesus. What makes the country great is because it represents and values that which is valued by Christ himself. And when a land, any land, deviates from that, there's going to be a problem between the land and the Christian who lives in the land, potentially. So... We want to be loyal and faithful to Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. You are loyal. Jesus, you were loyal to the Father. And to the point where you were willing to experience suffering in this world because you were so loyal to the work that God had called you to, Lord. We thank you that you were faithful and loyal 
to the assignment that you had. And help us, Lord, be faithful to you as you were faithful to the Father. Help us to be faithful to you in the assignment that you have called us to as Christians living in a society that is becoming more and more loyal to the state than to you. Help us to, to know, Lord, what will happen and to be faithful to you regardless. We love you, Lord. Give us strength and courage for the months and the years ahead. You know what's going to happen. We do not. But if we follow you and trust you, we know that you're going to have our backs and that we will be successful in all that we do for you as we attempt to make your kingdom known in this world. For the honor and glory of your precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let us continue our worship this morning by singing uh, hymn number 562, Be Thou My Vision. Would you please stand if you are able? Citizens of the kingdom. Amen. That's what we are. That's where our loyalties lie, with Jesus Christ. Not to anyone or anything else. Jesus first. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.